you want to open up your copy of scripture with me to Haggai chapter 1. You might not know where Haggai is. <laughs> so if you go to the book of Matthew and then go three books backwards, you will find Haggai there in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. A very small book, so you might miss it, so go slowly. <laughs> and the book of Haggai is one of the minor prophets. And we're going to be looking at this great book over the next couple weeks, these two chapters in the Old Testament. Now, the book of Haggai is called a minor prophet, prophet not because it's lesser, <laughs> but because it's a smaller book compared to the major prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. And this comes to a people who have returned out of exile. The prophet Haggai is speaking to the people of Israel who have returned from exile in Babylon. They have been exiled because of their sin and disobedience, and they have been returned to the promised land, to Jerusalem, and they've been commissioned to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Babylon. And this is a word of the prophet to the people. And when we come to the Old Testament, I think we can all struggle with the same sorts of questions. And especially when we come to Old Testament prophecy and imagery. How are we to understand these things? We read about temples and people and exile. and How do we put all these things together? How do we understand the truths of the Old Testament in light of the New Testament? How do we apply passages like Haggai? How do we bring them to bear on our daily lives? Do they have any significance to us? Or are they simply for a different people at a different time and bear no weight on us today? But as we remember, we talked about in the Five Solas series, we talked about that all of Scripture and the scope of all of Scripture, is the purpose of it is to bring all glory to God through the work of Jesus Christ and his church by redeeming them and saving a people for himself. And so we can sum up the whole Old Testament in this sense, that the Old Testament promises Christ that is to come. And the New Testament testifies that Christ has come. And so we can say, in a sense, that all of the Old Testament, including the book of Haggai, is about Christ and his church, promising the Christ who is to come and his church in him. That the end for which the Bible was written especially the Old Testament, was not just about Israel. It was not just about self-help or prosperity. It's not mainly about moralism or how to live a better life, how to be a good person, but it is about Christ and his church. That is why the whole scripture was written. It is about Christ and his church. Christ in all the scriptures, we could say. And so this changes how we approach books like this. And that's why I think it's important that we not only study Scripture in the New Testament, but why we also go and study Scripture in the Old Testament to see what the Lord has for us. And my goal through looking at this book over the next two weeks is that we'll see that the book of Haggai is not just about a physical people seeking to rebuild a physical temple in a physical land, but points not to itself, but beyond itself. 
as it looks forward to the work of Christ in the new covenant and his people found in him by faith, the true dwelling place of God by the Spirit. That as we look to the book of Haggai and then as we look to the whole scriptures, we'll see that it is Christ who builds his church, the house of God, who stirs up and strengthens his people for this work of building the church And it is him that will receive all glory for this work. Despite persecution, despite the trials that it will face, he will accomplish this person. He will receive the glory for it. So I'm going to read the first chapter for us this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. And as we said, Haggai is written to a people that have returned from exile in Babylon. They're given this fresh start in the land of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, after being exiled for their sin, right? There's been this decree that they are to go back to the land, to rebuild the temple, and they had started their work when they first got there, but over the last 20 or so years, they have stopped building the temple. They have ceased from their work. There's been opposition within and without, and they have stopped building the temple, the dwelling place of God on the earth. And so the the prophet Haggai speaks to this people and he speaks to the prophet and he speaks to the priest and the governor Zerubbabel and we'll see what this means for God's people. So I'm going to begin at verse one and then we will look to God's word. This is the word of the Lord. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josekiah, oh sorry, Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you to yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat But you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain and the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and all of their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, 
obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you trusting in your mercy and grace. That as we look to your word found in the Old Testament, we pray that you would give us strength this morning to see all of your word as pointing to Christ, his person and his work. That without him, we are without God and without hope in this world. And as we seek to understand your word this morning, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would stir us up and strengthen us. Not only to understand your word as it finds its fulfillment in Christ, but that you would stir us up this morning to the work that you have called us to. That you might receive glory in all the earth and that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to look at three different things as we go through chapter one of Haggai this morning. First, we're going to look at the commission to build the temple. We'll see that in verses one through 11, the commission to build the temple. We'll see in verses 12 through 14, the promised presence of the Lord. And finally, we'll see, thirdly, the great commission fulfilled in Christ. The Great Commission fulfilled in Christ. So first we'll look at the commission to build the temple. That we see in the first verse, the kind of three main figures in the book of Haggai, along with the people of Israel. We see these three figures are named. First figure is the prophet, the one who's writing the book. He is the one that speaks forth the word of the Lord to the people. The second person we see is Zerubbabel who is a governor, a son of David, this kind of king-like figure that is governing, overseeing the people and the building of the temple. And finally, we see the high priest Joshua, who was to offer sacrifices for the people in the house of the Lord. And then we see the people, the remnant of Israel, who are gathered together in the land. But as you'll notice in the book of Haggai and in all the other prophets, the the role of the prophets in the Old Testament were to be what many people call God's covenant prosecutors. God's covenant prosecutors. That they were to bring the word of the Lord to the people, taking the law of the Lord revealed in the first five books of the Bible in the Old Covenant and to show the people that they had broken God's law, that they had violated his commandments that they were going to undergo judgment if they did not repent and turn from their sin, they would be cursed and they would be exiled. But the prophets also look beyond the people 
to the promises of the new covenant. And so in Haggai chapter 1, we see it's very clear that the people have disobeyed. They have failed to build the house of the Lord. Instead, they've started building their own houses instead of building the house of the living God. And I think it's important that we understand the history of Israel and this commission to build the temple that was given to them. That as we've talked about before, God promised his people, the people of Israel, even going back to the book of Deuteronomy, that if they obeyed him, if they kept his law, if they built the temple and protected the worship and the house of the Lord, that he would make the land that they were going to dwell in be like the land of Eden, flowing with milk and honey, that they would have every good thing that they needed. But if they disobeyed, if they broke the covenant... He would bring curses upon them, that they would be driven out from the land. They would be exiled, just like Adam and Eve were exiled out of the Garden of Eden. You can read about this in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the curses of the Old Covenant. But what we see in the Old Testament is that the people, just like Adam and Eve, disobeyed. They broke the covenant They did exactly what they were not supposed to do. The people sinned. We see in the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel is divided, the northern and the southern kingdom. God sends the Babylonians in judgment. The temple that Solomon built is destroyed, and the people are exiled in judgment. But the Lord promises a return from exile. In the prophet Jeremiah He says that after 70 years, the Lord will return his people from exile, from slavery to the promised land, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the house of the Lord. You can read about this in Ezra chapter one by the order of a pagan Persian king, Cyrus, the people are ordered and commissioned to go back to the land. They're freed from their slavery and exile, returning to Jerusalem to build this temple. And there's this fascinating passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. We read this commission given by the pagan Persian king Cyrus. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of the Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdoms and also put it in writing. Thus says the king of Persia, Cyrus, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. So we see this commission. Cyrus proclaims all authority. He commissions the people to go back to the land and he promises the presence of the Lord as they do this work of temple building. Now this is amazing. A pagan king commissioning the people of Israel to go back to the land to be freed and to begin this work of rebuilding the temple. But as we read in the book of Haggai, We see the people begin the work, but fail. They begin the work of temple building, but they fail. They they face opposition without. People try to persecute them. People try to stop them from building this temple. 
They face persecution from within. Opposition. People are dismayed. People are upset by the size of the temple. It's not as big as they thought it would be. Their sin, their selfishness, they're building their own houses instead of building the house of the Lord. And so this causes the people to cease building the house of the Lord, make excuses, and stop this temple building project. And we see that in verse 2. The Lord says to them, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The people are essentially saying, it's not time yet. You know, maybe it isn't the full 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy. Maybe we can hold off a couple years. It's like, a Persian king just let you go to build this temple. What do you mean it's not yet time? Okay, what is going on here? They say, well, we, at least we've been saved from exile. We can get to the temple building project later. And this might not sound like a big deal to you and I, but the temple is where God's presence dwelt. It was the center of worship and glory. And so to not prioritize the temple and the building of the temple was in essence to not prioritize prioritize worship and the things of God. They would rather build their own house instead of building the house of the Lord. They expected the work to be easy. They expected the temple to just kind of build itself, right? God, God is this far, surely the temple will just build itself. That there would be no hardship, that there would be no difficulty, no trials, no persecution, no testing. They wanted their best life now, we could say, okay? They just wanted to live in the land, build their houses, make them look nice, and not worry about the house of the Lord. Instead of rebuilding the temple, the dwelling place of God, the house of worship, they're building their own house. It's really interesting, this language of paneled houses, you can see it there in verse um, 4. This language of paneled houses is only used elsewhere to refer to Solomon's temple. So they're making, instead of making the temple in this paneled way, in this ornate way, they're making their own houses ornate. They're paneling their own houses instead of building up the house of the Lord. And so we can see quickly that this is sinful and wrong. Maybe they saw the houses that they used to live in in Babylon. They were nicer houses. They're going to Jerusalem. It's in ruins. Maybe they're wishing they could go back to Babylon and make their houses look as nice as the people there. And so very quickly we see that the sin of this people is not new in the scriptures. It's actually the same sin that we see in the people of Israel in the wilderness and Adam and Eve in the garden. Not having enough, wishing they could have more. Wanting to go back to slavery, back to Egypt. That describes people in Israel, in the wilderness, seeking their own comfort, forsaking the worship of God, and desiring to go back to Egypt, back to slavery, back to bondage. Adam and Eve in the garden desire the one tree that they can't have. The one thing that they can't have, they desire that. They follow Satan and their own bellies, and if they would just obey God, they would be blessed. But we see they do not. They choose their own happiness, their own comfort outside of God's will. And so instead of finding life, they only find curse. That under these arrangements, the people keep failing. Adam and Eve, the people of Israel, they keep failing, they keep failing. And we read about that in the next passage that just like Adam failed in his commission, Israel has failed in their temple building uh, 
project. Just as Adam was exiled and cursed because of his sin, we see in verses 5 through 11 that the Old Testament covenant curses are beginning to fall on the people for not obeying the word of the Lord. What do we see in verse 6? It says, You have sown much and harvested little. You've worked hard, you've sown much, but you're not getting in return anything. You're not getting harvest like you thought you would. And we can hear the echoes of the curse in Genesis 3, right? You will toil in the land. You will bring up thorns and thistles. This is the common curse given to all people in the Garden of Eden. But we can see there's more going on here than just the common curse. But we see in verses 10 through 11, the covenant curses of Deuteronomy chapter 28. That the heavens are shut up, that there's barrenness in the land, there's drought and famine. These are all curses of the book of Deuteronomy under these theocratic arrangements in the land. That because the people have not obeyed the covenant, and because they're under this covenant, this arrangement in the land as a people, the heavens are shut up, there's drought, there's famine, there's barrenness in the land, And God is sending his judgment upon them. And so the word of the prophet is this. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Consider what you are doing. Look at what's happening because of your sin. We think that sin has no consequences. That we can just do whatever we want and it has no bearing on us. And even though we are in a different arrangement than these people in the Old Testament under theocratic Israel... Where if they sinned, the whole land was famished. We're not under that arrangement anymore. But we see that sin has consequences. And so the prophet tells them to consider their ways. Look what is happening because of your sin. And so it's amazing in verses 12 through 15, we see that by exposing their sin through this judgment, it brings the people to repentance. They are stirred up. And strengthened for this work of temple building, convicted, cut to the heart, and they begin to rebuild the temple. And that leads us to our second point this morning. We see in verse chapter and verse 12 that the people begin to obey. We see Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, that it's not only the people, but it's Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, the son of David of this land, that there is fear and reverence for God. We read about that in the end of verse 12, that they feared the Lord. And we also see in verse 13 that there's this great promise of the presence of the Lord. He says, I am with you, declares the Lord. I will be with you in this work. I'm not leaving you. I'm not forsaking you. I'm not leaving you on your own. I am with you. The promised presence of the Lord in the building of his house. That not only does the Lord stir up his people for this work, but he strengthens them by his spirit to do this work. And not only the work of temple building, but the work of what he has called them to do in dwelling amongst his people. And so we could look at this at the end of chapter one 
and we might be tempted to think that things are starting to look pretty good for these people, right? They were sinning, they were disobeying, but now they have repented, they've turned, they're following the Lord, and things are starting to look promising. Maybe they had a rocky start, but the people are now starting to obey. Maybe this is the new Jerusalem that the prophets spoke about. Maybe this is the new temple that Ezekiel promised. Maybe this is the renewed remnant where God would dwell in their presence forever and never leave them. But as we come to the next chapter, we see that this temple is not so great. (laughs) It's not the temple that Ezekiel promised. That the people, even though they in chapter 1 are turning, in chapter 2 we see that they remain unclean. That they are defiled, they are impure before a holy God, and they fail in this temple building project. That, as we'll see next week, their hands are unclean, and therefore the whole temple is unclean, because they are an unclean people. And so we can begin to see how this Old Testament shadow is not the point in and of itself, but it points beyond itself to the New Testament fulfillment in Christ and in his church. That even though this temple that they will eventually build will be destroyed, what's being pointed to here in the book of Haggai is greater than any earthly temple and cannot be destroyed. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, the Great Commission in Christ. The Great Commission in Christ. That as we come to the New Testament, we see, as we spoke about last week, that it's in the person of Christ where God's presence dwells among his people. He is the one who took on flesh and tabernacled among us. He is the promised presence of Christ among his people. He, as John 4 says, is the focal point of our worship and our work. He has come to do what Adam failed to do and what Israel failed to do. He has come to work perfectly, the one who was never unclean, defeat the opposition, enter God's Sabbath rest, and build the house of the Lord. But not only was he come to work perfectly, he came and where sin and failure had only earned judgment and curse, Christ came to take the covenant curses upon himself. The curses that our sin deserved, in his death, Christ takes the curses that his people deserve, the very wrath and judgment of God. But he doesn't remain in the grave. By his glorious resurrection from the dead, Christ defeats death itself, and as we read this morning, becomes the chief cornerstone, the first fruits of a new creation found in him. He begins this temple building project, building a renewed people, living stones that are being built up into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, the new creation temple of Christ and his church. And this house of the Lord is being built up and commissioned Not by going up and getting wood and stone to build a physical temple. That's not how we build the house of the Lord. But it is by going out to all the nations, gathering in the people of God, 
to build a spiritual house, a living temple for the Lord. And this is exactly what we see in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, that it is Christ through his church commissioning them to go into all the nations, proclaiming the gospel of grace by his authority and the promise of his continual presence by the spirit, building up the temple of the Lord. That unlike the Old Testament, it is not a pagan king who commands God's old covenant people to build, but the true king of heaven and earth who commissions his redeemed new covenant people to build his church. It is not a physical structure with external earthly glory, but a spiritual temple of Christ and his church, inward glory by the spirit now to be revealed in glory to come. That this is what makes Christ and his great commission so much better than Cyrus's commission. <laughs> we see the same three things. We see authority, we see a commission, and we see the promised presence. But where Cyrus only had authority over earth, Christ proclaims authority over heaven and earth. Where Cyrus commissions them to build a physical temple, Christ commissions his people to go and make disciples, building a spiritual temple. And where Cyrus could only point to the promised presence of Christ, we see in the Great Commission, in verse 20, Jesus promised the promised continual presence of Christ with his church by the Spirit. And he says, behold, I am with you always. Quoting Haggai chapter 1, verse 13. Behold, I am with you. That this Great Commission that we read in the New Testament is actually pictured like a temple building project. It's using the language of temple building. A divine commission to build the house of the Lord, a spiritual temple, the dwelling place of God among his redeemed people. This is what Christ has done in the New Testament. And if that's not enough, if you... If that's not enough to convince you, when you go to the New Testament epistles, as we read this morning in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, how does Peter describe the church? Living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house. What does Paul say in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20? That God's people are growing up into a holy temple a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He'll say in 1 Corinthians that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, saying explicitly that Christ and his people united to him are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit, that the church is the temple of the living God, that Adam failed his temple building commission, Israel failed their temple building project, but Christ will not. He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, right? He will accomplish his purposes. All of God's people will be saved. The new creation temple will be built and finished in the new heavens and the new earth. And we'll look at these things later in next week's sermon. But as we begin to think about chapter one of Haggai, 
and what that means for us in this room. What do we do with these Old Testament books and prophecies? We can see very clearly that us in the New Testament, us in the New Covenant, are experiencing these promises in their fulfilled way. We are experiencing the fulfillment of these realities. What does the writer to Hebrews say? We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. We have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. We are the living temple, the new creation in Christ, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And we are those who have been given this great commission by our Lord, that as Christ's church, we are called and commissioned to build his temple. But the question for us this morning is this. How do we do this? How do we build this temple that is spoken of in the New Testament? How do we build this new creation temple? How does the kingdom of God grow? How is the house of the Lord built up? How is it going to happen? Is it through pragmatism and entertainment? Should we just say, well, if it works, if it gets people in the door, that's how the Lord's house will be built. Is it through means of human effort or exertion? If I can just work hard enough, if I can just obey enough, then God will build his house and then the kingdom of God will expand. Is it through our obedience? Is it through the building of a physical temple? Is it through the building of a physical kingdom on earth where we build for ourselves paneled houses and we live our best life now? Or is it through the power of God's spirit? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. Through the preaching of Christ and him crucified. Is it through the work and ministry of the local church in word and sacrament? Is it through the seemingly ordinary support and work of God's people, gathering together each week, worshiping in spirit and in truth, under the word of God, proclaiming the gospel of God, praying together, serving one another, fighting their sin, encouraging and building one another up in the faith, even in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, in the face of things without and within. And the answer is the latter. That is how Christ builds his church is through the seemingly ordinary work and support of his people gathering together in him. And it's not only that, but it's through the work of missions, evangelism, and the planting of biblical churches that the temple of God expands over all the earth. What began in Jerusalem went to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. This is what Christ's plan of redemption is. It's through the planting of biblical churches throughout all the earth, proclaiming the gospel that this temple is built and established. That we are not called to build another physical temple in the new covenant. We are the temple of Christ, a living temple made up of living stones offering spiritual worship to God by the Spirit. The true temple, Christ and his people in him. The gospel going to the nations, churches being planted. This is how the Great Commission is fulfilled. And it's important that we talk about these things, especially things like church planting, because sadly in our day, 
many people see evangelism as simply seeking to get as many conversions as possible. How many people can raise their hands at the altar call? How many people can sign a card that said, I accepted Christ? How many people can get baptized? How many people can pray the prayer? It's all about seeking these numbers and conversions apart from or separated from the ministry of the local church. This has led to individualism, personal evangelism only, mega church culture, and solo Christianity where we seek to do the Christian life all by ourselves, separated from the local church, and seeking these conversions but not seeking to add people to the local church. But our particular Baptist forefathers saw things very differently. And in an article called Light in Dark Corners, Jim Ranahan says this about church planting in the 17th century. I have a couple copies up front if you want one after. Listen to these words. He's talking about these particular Baptists in the 17th century and how they viewed these things. He says, evangelism was not carried out simply to seek after conversions. Churches had to be planted. Those who received the gift of salvation were expected to become part of a well-ordered church. And listen to these words. The particular Baptist could not conceive of evangelism apart from church planting. They could not conceive of evangelism apart from church planting. That missions, evangelism, and church planting were inseparable. That we don't just go preach the gospel to people and say, have a good life. But we preach the gospel to people that they might come and be welcomed into a biblical, well-ordered church. That the Great Commission is how Christ fulfills this through this temple-building project. And as a congregation, shortly, we'll have before us the opportunity to help plant a church by the help of the Spirit. We'll have the opportunity to possibly help plant a church training biblically qualified men, sending them out to preach the gospel and evangelize and Lord willing, commissioning them to go and do this work of planting a well-ordered confessional church, praying for and supporting them that through the works of fallen sinful people, God's kingdom might grow, sinners might be saved and this new creation temple might be built up. And so whether it's the work of church planting, or maybe for many of us in this room, it's the seemingly ordinary work that we do week in and week out in God's church. We can be tempted to say, like the people in Haggai, the time has not yet come. We can be tempted like them to say the time has not yet come. The time has not yet come to build the house of the Lord or to value the work and the worship of the triune God. How, how guilty are we of this on a day-to-day basis, right? I thought Christianity would be easy. It's hard to fight sin. It's hard to live for the Lord. It's a difficult thing. Maybe I can do that later. I'll, I'll get to my sanctification later. I'll get to fighting my sin later. I'll make the worship of, of God a priority next time. That we, like the people who did not prioritize the work and worship of God, do the same thing in our own lives. We justify it and we say the time has not yet come. Or maybe we see our own failures, we see our own sin, 
and we think to ourselves, there's no way that God could use me. There's no way God could use me for his work of building his church. We think that God couldn't use us, that we have nothing to give, that we are seemingly useless in this plan. But what's so amazing about Christ's church is it's pictured as a body where all the pieces work together, where no matter what you do for the church, it is glorifying to God. Coming and praying, worshiping, serving, all these things glorify God, build up the saints, and build his church. That God is going to use the work of broken, sinful, fallen people like you and I, who have been redeemed by Christ, to accomplish his purposes, to build his church by the preaching of the gospel. That God, in his providence, has given us every blessing to go forward with this commission, right? He's given us every blessing to go forward with this great commission. He's given us his word by which we might know what he has spoken. He's given us his spirit to empower us for this work. He's promised his presence with his church, not only now, but to the end of the age. And how much more for us in the United States of America? We have freedom. We have the ability to proclaim the gospel without fear of being thrown in jail. We have every blessing, not only in God's special grace, but in his common grace. We live in a free country where we can proclaim the gospel. How much more so should we do this? But the question is, even if we didn't live in a free country, even if persecution does come to God's people, even if we are put on trial for our faith with opposition and suffering, will we still follow God or will we follow man? Will we seek the worship of God or will we seek our own comfort? That's the question before us this morning. But we're reminded by the truth that we're not under the covenant of works. It's not based on our obedience, but we are under God's covenant of grace. It is Christ who builds his church by the power of the Spirit, building us up as living stones into a living temple to offer spiritual worship where his kingdom at the end of all things will have no end. He will dwell with us in glory. As we said last week, the earth will be filled with his glory. God's people dwelling with him, worshiping him, all to the praise of his grace. So let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your great grace to us. That as we look to the book of Haggai, we see our great failings. That we, like the people, seek after our own comfort, our own desires. We have not prioritized the worship of God as we should. We have not prioritized the ordinances of God. We have sought our own comfort. We have sought to build up our own house instead of the house of the Lord. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to see what Christ is doing by the powers of his spirit in the proclamation of the gospel. That as the good news goes forth, we pray, Lord, that sinners might be saved, that God's house might be built up, that you would receive the glory, no person, no institution, but that you, the good shepherd of the sheep, would receive glory as you call your people to yourself, as you lead them by your grace, and as you promise to sustain us to glory. We need your help this morning. We need your grace. 
and we look forward to heaven where there will be no sin, no trials, but there will be eternal bliss with our great God. We look forward to that even now, and we pray all these things in Christ's name.